0: But this time, would encourage you to open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. As we continue working our way through this book, we'll be looking today at the idea of true freedom. We'll finish out this fourth chapter and just dip briefly into chapter 5. So if you have a copy of God's word there, we'll read just the first few verses. We'll read this as we move along through it. So we'll read together now verses 21 to 23. Galatians 4, 21, Paul writes, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. As we jump in here some of y'all here are puzzle people. Now, I am not. I do not particularly enjoy puzzles, but recently some members of our family have really gotten into puzzles. Now, you know if you do puzzles that there are puzzles and then there are puzzles. Uh, So, for instance, you know, you can start with kind of big piece floor puzzles, which a three or four year old can do in a matter of minutes. That's my style of puzzle. But you can move up from there to, say, a hundred piece puzzle that can take Uh, Several minutes for a few people to together, or if you keep moving up to 500, 750 pieces, a thousand-piece puzzle that can take several days laid out on a table and take up your entire living room. Well, this morning, we are in a thousand-piece puzzle. In fact, this passage is one of the trickier sections in the Word of God to understand, both how we should understand it as well as how it fits in with the overall flow of the Word of God. This passage reveals to us a universal human tendency, and this tendency is to look at the sacrifice of Christ and believe that we can improve it by adding to it our own efforts. And so Paul is countering this idea by taking us on a, a journey through history and showing us that's a return to our old way of life ironically even for those who know christ who seek life in christ our old man is always telling us to return to the old way and paul says that is bondage as we walk through this passage together this morning we will see that life in christ is the only life of true freedom life in christ is the only life of true freedom In 1839, there was a ship off the coast of Cuba. It was a slave ship, and free Africans had been brought and captured illegally into slavery and placed on this ship. Somehow, they managed to gain control of this ship, but as they were attempting to sail to freedom, they were tricked and ended up in the United States of America. It's a fairly well-known story, popularized in Steven Spielberg's 1997 film, Amistad. Now there is a particularly gripping scene in this story where the leader of these Africans, who doesn't really speak English, his name is Sinke, they're on trial. They can understand little of what's going on in the courtroom. And there's this moment as they're on trial where he begins to stand up in the courtroom and shout, give us free, give us free. It's one of the most gripping moments in this story where this leader of these Africans demands freedom as best he can in halting English. Well, if you know the end of that story, the, the way this plays out, it takes two years, 1841, reaches the U.S. Supreme Court, and these Africans are declared free, that they were captured illegally. But imagine, you know, we live in the day of sequels. You know, Lion King, Remake, Frozen 2. Imagine that we've got Amistad 2. 2. And in this remake, this sequel to this 1997 film, we're introduced to Sinke again. And we found him lying in the hold of a slave ship. Only this time, he's not been put there against his will. He chose to be there. In fact, he says, you know, after all, I realize this is where I belong. Doesn't make any sense. In fact, it completely undermines, robs the original story of its power. To return to slavery doesn't make sense. And yet Paul tells us today, this is how we tend to live our Christian lives. Set free by the blood of Christ, but always tempted to live in bondage. So the first thing we see as Paul tries to help us understand this is the story. He's going to take us to a story in the Old Testament... ...and he's introduced it to us here in verses 21 to 23. Like many good teachers, Paul has a story to make a point. So we're walking back 2,000 years from Paul in history to the time of Abraham and Moses. Paul points us to a story that God's people are quite familiar with. But to introduce the story... Paul introduces us to an inclination in our own hearts in verse 1. You who desire to be under the law. Our natural inclination is self-justification. It's to justify ourselves. But Galatians 3.23 tells us to be under the law is to be held captive. And yet Paul's writing to people who desire to be under the law. Well, What does it mean to live under the law? Well, many of you are a few or several years ahead of me in the the parenting process. And you know that part of the parenting process is a desire as your children grow, a desire for independence. A desire for freedom. But one of the great ironies in this fight for independence in our children is that what leads to freedom is actually trustworthiness under bondage so to speak so if a child for instance desires to live free of all restraint it's like "Ah, maybe you're not ready to get your license yet or maybe you're not ready to live life on your own or they kind of walk out the door they're 18 19 years old and they run up debt and they flunk out of school what they're demonstrating is they can't handle what freedom they can only live under bondage. The, the, thing that they re, the, the thing that they hate, the restriction, is what they need actually to succeed in life. It demonstrates that they can't be free of the authority of their parents. What Paul's talking about here is living under the law, which means that we live as though we can't survive without the restriction of the law. The law is necessary to either survive as a Christian, or we think it's important to improve what Christ has done. I mean, that's good in all, but there are ways that we can make it better. Now, it might be tempting to think, if you're someone who's known Jesus a long time, that this isn't something that you'd struggle with. But if you've ever thought that God loves you more when you're obedient you might be someone who desires to live under the law. If you've thought about something in your life that you're ashamed of, something you've ever thought or said or done, and wondered, could God love me or could I actually be a child of God, you're revealing a natural desire to live under the law. Now, I know no one here ever struggles with this, but imagine that you know someone who's defensive when attacked. Someone says something to you, it might be true, or it might not even be true, and your first instinct is to defend yourself, to justify yourself. Revealing a natural desire to live under the law. Or maybe, as you kind of weigh your life, you're a pretty good person. So God loves you. You're again revealing a natural desire to live under the law. This is not something that a few people in the first century struggled with. It's something that is endemic to the human character. It is part of who we are. It's a desire to justify ourselves. Well, then how do we correct this natural tendency? Like anything else in our lives, Correcting this inclination comes from listening to the word. Paul asks the question in verse 21 Do you not listen to the law? In other words, you want to be under the law. Well, how about we start by listening to what it actually says? And Paul's talking about the law, the word of God, as it's revealed in the book of Genesis. You see, for all of us, the Christian life is a life of growing by having our living and our thinking transformed by the word of God. The answer is always the word. Because we have this flow in life and God by his spirit and by his word corrects our thinking. And so Paul points us to the word. These people are seeking to live under the law, but trying to live this way shows that what? They don't actually understand the law itself. So now we get to the story. Jews are very proud children of Abraham. Genesis 12, 15, 17, God appears to Abraham and makes a covenant with him that he will make Abraham's name great and bless all nations of the earth through Abraham and his offspring. Genesis 15 through 18 in particular tell us the story of Abraham and two women, Sarah and Hagar. God promised to father his chosen people through Abraham and Sarah's son there was however a minor problem abraham was 99 years old now he robbed the cradle and was married to a rather youthful 90 year old sarah abraham and sarah know that even in this time 99 and 90 year olds don't have babies so genesis 17 17 tells us when abraham heard they were going to have a baby he fell on his face and laughed Sarah responded by laughing, too. It's hard to blame. them. They know 90-year-old women don't get pregnant. Well, since they don't want children, or since they want children but don't think they can have them, Sarah invokes an ancient Near Eastern custom and gives her servant to Abraham to have her child in her place. So Sarah's servant, Hagar, gives birth to Ishmael. But, as verse 23 here tells us, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. In other words, Ishmael was born through Abraham's and Sarah's attempts to self-fulfill God's promise. To accomplish in human strength what God himself would do. But self-justification works never. Whether it's 2,000 years before Christ the time of Christ, or 2,000 years later, like today, self-justification doesn't work. Yet, later in Genesis 21, God's impossible promise comes to pass. Abraham and Sarah give birth to a son. Isaac is born. So now, verse 23, the son of the free woman, Isaac, is born through the promise, not by their own attempted self-justification. So, Now, let's see what this means. Let's pick up in verse 24. We'll read down to verse 27. Now, Paul says, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, where the law was given, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, the one on this earth. For she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above, the one in heaven, is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, "Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear; break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor." For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So, how is it that we make sense of the law? And this is the section of this passage that is really, really tricky. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. So, our biblical canon, these 66 books, completed around in the 80 90s sometime. Well, then we have the first several centuries of church history, and in those centuries, the leaders of the church are people that we call the church fathers. In other words, the rest of the church kind of descended, no matter what denomination you're in today, you descended from this body of believers, these leaders. And many of the church fathers practiced what's called a fourfold interpretation of scripture. In other words, they're trying to assign not just what do the literal words mean, but understand the significance of those words. And so they came up with these four levels of meaning. The first being the literal meaning. In other words, what do the words themselves actually mean? The second is the typological or allegorical meaning. How do we assign a spiritual meaning to these words beyond the words themselves? A third is the moral meaning of the text. In other words, what does this bind us to? What does this mean for us as Christians? And the fourth is the anagogical meaning, which is what does this mean in light of the afterlife as we look forward to the next life? Over time, the Latin term census plenior was assigned to describe the full meaning of Scripture because interpreters were trying to get at the deeper meaning intended by God but maybe not understood by the human author. Well, this brings us to a question. In one sense, is it legitimate for us to assign meaning to the text of Scripture that's not clearly indicated by Scripture itself? Well, on the one hand, this kind of thing is used quite unhelpfully. A modern example of this is Sarah Young's Jesus Calling, where someone takes the words of Scripture and then mystically spiritualizes them ...to say almost anything that she wants them to mean. Well, it can't be this. It doesn't mean that everything that person says is wrong. It just means that they're using the Bible in a way that God never intended the Bible to be used. And we have to ask, what is it that God intends? But, however, there is a process of not understanding only the literal words... ...but the significance of those words... Not just the words as we read them on a page, but what is the spiritual meaning of those words? Well, this leads us to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2 teaches the doctrine of illumination. Illumination is the process of not merely understanding the words of the Bible, but the significance of those words. It's the spirit of, empowering the words of scripture and and making them significant to us as god's people he gives these words life you see the bible is written by 40 authors over a period of 1500 years but it's not merely a human book it's a book of divine authorship 2 Timothy 3 tells us that God breathed out the words of Scripture. 2 Peter 1, 21 tells us that God used men to write these spirit-breathed words down. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, it doesn't mean... The the Bible is like the most beautiful diamond. You hold it up to the light and you turn it and you're learning new things all the time. There are layers of intention and meaning in the word of God. And that's the process of growing as a Christian. It's why a four or five year old can understand the truth. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus to save me and become a child of God. And yet you can meet someone 80 years old who's walked for decades with Jesus and is always learning new things as they come to the Word. It's because though it was penned by humans, it was authored by God. And we can't fully understand what's here apart from God's Spirit himself revealing it to us. It's why if you find yourself, as you come to the Word, feeling like you're just banging your head against a wall, and it never means anything to you, That may or may not mean that you're a Christian, but one thing that you have to pray for is, God, would your spirit open my eyes to understand? Pray with the psalmist, open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. It's not a merely human process. There are people much smarter than you or I, who do not understand the significance of these words. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of the spirit, the living spirit of God within us, resonating within us, that these are words of life. And apart from the spirit, you cannot understand this book. What we've got going on in Galatians chapter 4 is a combination of typology and allegory. Now maybe you remember a few, words, a, few a few minutes ago I used those words describing those fourfold senses of scripture. Typology and allegory. Allegory takes something and assigns a meaning to it beyond what the literal meaning is. It's just assigns a spiritual meaning. Now, typology is a different process. It's a process that we actually see in Scripture. Where there's something and then there's a meaning that as Scripture reveals it, it's heightened and increased for us its significance. Scripture points to Christ and Christ fulfills that imagery. So, a clear example of this is in John chapter 3. Right before John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, John 3, verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him as he is lifted up may have eternal life. The serpent on Moses' staff in the Old Covenant is a type of Jesus. That's typology. So with all that said, what do we to make of this passage? Well, this principle could take not just an entire sermon, but semesters of class. There's no way we can make all of this clear. So in the interest of time, I'll try to do this briefly. When we study our Bibles, it's tempting to make the first question, what does this mean to me? Now, that is an important question to ask, but it shouldn't be our first question. Asking that question can lead to dangerous places. Uh, sort of like the man who was flipping through his Bible and came to Matthew 27.5. And Judas went out and hanged himself. Kind of taken back by that and he kept flipping and he came to Luke 10.37. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So we must ask, okay, what does this say? What's the intention here? Then we ask what this means for us. So what we try to do is understand the verse in its original context and then see how it fits contextually, historically, and then as a part of the rest of Scripture. So one way of doing this is looking at the passage itself and running it through the lens of what else the Bible says about it, how the Bible elaborates on that. So I'm not much of an artist, but I try to sort of display for us how we go through the process of understanding Scripture. So what we have is a biblical text here in Galatians chapter 4. Now, we want to understand that in its biblical context, what else the Bible elaborates or says about it, and then come to contemporary application or what it means for us. So to take Genesis 15 to 18, you've got that text. It exists for almost 2,000 years before Paul says this some 2,000 years later. That's the text. The context of Genesis 15 through 18 is God's covenant with abraham what's the significance of that well we come to biblical elaboration what else does the bible say about it when well, we come to galatians 4 and paul has a lot to say about it and then we move to what this means for us today so you understand there's this kind of experience there's this gradually exponentially growing interpretation of scripture we look at the text we fit it into its larger context we see what the whole bible says about it and then we see okay what does this mean for us today so now back to our text in galatians chapter 4 we have two women two sons representing two covenants verses 24 and 25 tell us hagar is mount sinai she bears children for slavery like first century jerusalem the children of hagar they're ishmaelites And they are like people who attempt to live under the law. They are slaves of sin. But, verse 26, the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free. She's our mother. Believers, therefore, live as citizens of that Jerusalem, not of the earthly Jerusalem. So we've got these contrasts. Hagar, Sarah, law, promise, earthly Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem is our mother, God is our Father. Then Galatians 4, 27 quotes Isaiah 54, 1. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one of those who has a husband. In this passage, the Lord describes his exiled people as a barren woman, deserted by her husband, left with no children. Yet that childless woman will one day flourish and bear children. where's the fulfillment of this promise? It's found in Christ and the church. God's children, through faith in Christ, are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. Later in Isaiah 54, Isaiah 54 10, the Lord promises that my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. So Paul's point is this. Two women with two sons point us to two covenants. And the fulfillment of the second covenant, the new covenant, is the church that finds its home not here on this earth, but in a heavenly Jerusalem. In the new heavens, in the new earth. In other words, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. You can claim Abraham as your daddy. But if the new Jerusalem ain't your mama, you're a slave, not a son. Okay, well, how do we take this and live it out? Well, let's pick up in verse 28. Galatians 4, 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So what is Paul's application here? He says you have to live in light of the true intention of the law. Genesis 21 verse 8, Isaac grew and was weaned. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned no longer nursing, let's have a party. And at that feast, Genesis 21, 9 tells us that Ishmael mocked Isaac. Ishmael at this point is probably in the range of 17 years old. So we have a 17-year-old mocking a, you know, three, four-year-old child. It's not hard to fill in the missing details. Mama don't like this. The relational dynamics in this family are all messed up. The moment that Isaac was born, he was the big deal. He was the treasure, treasure child. He was the son of promise. This couldn't have been easy for Ishmael. And Paul tells us to expect persecution like Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Verse 29, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So also he says it is now. I got news for you. Being a Christian doesn't mean that everybody loves you. And it means that some people will hate you. John Stott's commentary on this passage notes, The persecution of the true church is not always by the world, who are strangers, unrelated, but sometimes by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. You see, following Jesus passionately always brings resistance. Whether it's opposition from the world or from nominal Christians, people who submit to God's word make life very uncomfortable for those who like to pick and choose what they're going to obey. So Paul says to expect persecution. He also says to look to your inheritance. Verse 30, what does the scripture say? Verse 30 asks. Isaac's mama doesn't like ishmael mocking isaac so she says to abraham get rid of him now abraham didn't like this but the lord promised to care for ishmael so verse 30 here cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman isaac was persecuted but he got the inheritance do you see we endure the trials of this life Because an eternal inheritance in the heavenly Jerusalem is ours through Christ. As Romans 8 puts it, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So no matter what you endure in this life, whether it's loss or mocking or literal persecution, it is light, Paul says, it is nothing As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That, brothers and sisters, is the day we live for. It's not this light affliction. The blessings of this world, the greatest blessings that this world can offer are nothing compared to the weight of the coming glory that is ours through Christ. That's the day we look to. That's the day we live for. That's the day we long for. So what's the key to living life this way? Knowing we'll be persecuted, but looking to our inheritance, Paul says in verses 28 and 31, we must remember our new identity in Christ. Remember who we are. Verse 28, you like Isaac are children of promise. Verse 31, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You see, our natural inclination, apart from Christ, always pushes us into our old identity. We seek to improve our standing by obedience. Imagining that we can earn God's favor if we would just be more obedient. We're reminded of the shame of our sin rather than the forgiveness and the cleansing that are ours through Christ. We think we're good people so we can make what Jesus did better by being good. But brothers and sisters, God doesn't make us his children based on what we have done. God embraces us because of what Jesus has done. The only way to become this child The child of the promise is to admit that you don't deserve to be God's child. To admit that you aren't good and you haven't done. It's like the prodigal who arrives home and says, Father, make me like one of your servants. I am the disobedient child. God created Adam and Eve as innocent children. But those first children broke God's law. And since then, every child born into this world is born a disobedient son or daughter someone who does not deserve the father's blessing cannot earn it indeed will earn the father's justice against sin we're born children of the slave woman seeking to justify ourselves by the law like ishmael resenting our place in this life thinking we deserve to be blessed like god blessed jesus but you can never be good enough You can never do enough. But Jesus Christ is good. Jesus Christ has done. It is finished. If you're here this morning, apart from faith in Christ, would you turn to him? Jesus will be yours. The inheritance will be yours. Would you trust Christ alone? And then, we must live as if this new identity matters that's where Paul heads next chapter 5 verse 1 for freedom Christ has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery Paul concludes by saying live in freedom in Christ why did Christ set us free for freedom the freedom that Paul has in mind is a freedom from slavery to the law in other words there's a way of living a Christian life, that imagines we need to keep the law to keep the favor of our Heavenly Father. But Christ has set us free. So, if this is true, how should we respond? Verse 1 again. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So to track verse 31, 431, and chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says remember your new identity in christ end of chapter 4 chapter 5 verse 1 and live in light of this identity well how does this work isaac is abraham's son by birth galatians 4 tells us we become god's children through adoption so imagine this morning that we're orphans and we're not sitting in a church service this morning we're sitting in an orphanage waiting to be adopted and this isn't just any orphanage it's the kind of orphanage you see stories about the kind of orphanage that breaks your heart in fact there are so many children in this orphanage the director really knew through no fault of her own she's unable to care for them all so she keeps us all locked in individual closets It's the only way that she can maintain order and our food is slid under the door to us we get some gruel each morning to sustain our lives and we sit there waiting, waiting for our adoption. And then one day, some parents, hopeful parents, walk in the door. And they come to your closet. And they open the door and they see your misery. They see your loneliness. They see your isolation. They see the life you've been condemned to. They see the bondage in this closet that you live in. And they say, this one, this is our child. That's our son. That's our daughter. And they take you home with them. And they take you home, and you enter the house, and they show you around. And they show you your room. You have your own room with your own closet, your own bed, your own toys. And then they walk you through the house, and they show you the entire house. They walk you outside. They've got a beautiful yard, and they say, it's yours. It's all yours. And you stare at this, and it's overwhelming. You don't know what to do. Their house is your house. Their food, your food. Their casa, your casa. They tuck you into bed that night. You've never had this experience. You go to sleep for the first time loved by mom and dad. Next morning, mom and dad wake up and they can hardly wait to greet you. They walk into the room and look on the bed, but you're not in the bed. They panic and they begin to look all over and they find you in the closet. And they say, what are you doing in here? And you say, I'm scared to come out. The only thing I know is this bondage. The only thing I know is this restriction. And so day after day, They tuck you in only to find you the next morning in the closet with the door shut. And then one morning, mom and dad walk in. Say, we didn't adopt you for this life. We adopted you for freedom. Stand firm, therefore. And don't be entangled again with the closet of freedom. Don't return to the old way of life. This is not why we adopted you. This yard, it's yours. This house, it's yours. This room, it's yours. It's all yours. Live in light of what we have given you. Don't go back to the orphanage. Don't go back to the bondage. Don't go back to the old way of life. Stand firm. We have adopted you for freedom. You see, there's a way of living That says what God says doesn't matter. We dishonor God as our father by disobeying what God has said. That's one way we can dishonor our father. But what Paul is saying here is there is another way to dishonor our father. It's to be adopted into God's family. And to live as if that adoption never happened. It's to return to the old way of bondage. To believe that our obedience can make us more genuinely children of God than Christ's obedience could. If your Christian life feels like bondage, then you don't know the Father's heart. The Father loves because it's his nature to love, not because we're so lovely. You see, in the end, it doesn't make any difference. God loves because it's his nature to love, not because it's our nature to be loved. For freedom, Christ has set us free. To make this just one step more personal, one of the greatest joys as an earthly parent is squeezing your kids. Mine are still in an age where they can crawl on my lap and I can hold them that way. In fact, one of mine... This morning, I was up studying, and she came in, climbed on my lap, made me so happy. There's freedom in that relationship. But imagine that that child became convinced that the reason I loved her or embraced her was because of her obedience. Suddenly, love becomes bondage. Love is something then you earn. And when you don't obey, you go back to the closet. You see, obedience, true obedience, flows from love. Not love earned through obedience. And if we mix those up, We were turned to the old life of bondage. God has called us to freedom. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is joy and gladness and love and warmth and welcome, a place to belong in a devoted relationship with God that surpasses anything this world can give. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith I'll give you. A moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.